This is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson with Horn Healthcare, and our guest today on Buy-In is healthcare attorney Cindy Reese, a partner with Bass, Berry, and Sims in Nashville. Most of you listening will know Cindy. She's a nationally recognized healthcare attorney and sought-after advisor on transactional and operational matters, including acquisitions, joint ventures, and value-based alignment among providers and payers. One of the things I'm most proud to say is in 2019, Cindy was chosen president-elect designate of the American Health Law Association and will serve as president of AHLA beginning in June of 2021. Cindy, I'm so happy to have you with us today to talk about value-based arrangements among healthcare providers. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Greg, for inviting me to participate. Well, Cindy, I've, I've heard the term extraordinary times used a lot over the past three months, <laughs> and, and never has this been truer in healthcare, uh, including how healthcare providers are paid. Uh, you know, before the pandemic, we were living in days of coexisting fee-for-service and value-based payment arrangements, and incentive compensation models for physicians reflected what I call this messy merger of two different worlds. Now we can add terms like start blanket waivers and hazard pay. And so now it's about as extraordinary, I think, as it's ever been in my career. How do you feel about this blended world of incentives, especially those that reward fee-for-service productivity and value simultaneously when those points are sometimes in conflict with each other? Great question, Greg. You know, the fee-for-service model has been part of our healthcare system from the beginning. Providers and payers are accustomed to and comfortable with a system that is simple and fairly easy to follow. Providers file claims when services are rendered and payers either pay for the service or perhaps deny if it's not covered or deemed not medically necessary. Mm -hmm. But at its core, fee-for-service rewards volume. Value-based payment models come at it from a different approach. Currently, what we've seen um, is a model where some perhaps significant part of the payment to a provider is still fee-for-service. But at the same time, the payers are rewarding the providers for performance tied to quality metrics that are around cost and quality. I think the two models can and do coexist and will continue to do so as we transition eventually to a full value-based payment model. Now that transition is going to take time. Um, as pro- and yeah. we've seen that over the years as providers and payers become more knowledgeable about how to measure value-based care services, how to measure the value of it, um, as data analytics systems evolve, and through another new phrase we've been hearing a lot about in the last few years, artificial intelligence, <laughs> uh, we become s- smarter in setting those targets and in setting the value-based payments, whether it's a capitated payment or some sort of a bonus. Now, you brought it up too, but I'll say it as well. We can't have a podcast without reference to COVID-19 these days. The pandemic may be serving as a catalyst for adoption of more value-based payment models. If you think about it, 
since mid, mid to the end of March, um, the fee-for-service model in effect evaporated for many, many providers. Mm-hmm. Um, but with value-based payment, the revenue continued to flow. The, mm-hmm. I think the pandemic has highlighted the pitfalls of paying for healthcare services based solely on the number of patients seen or the number of procedures performed. It also reinforced the benefits of tying the cost of healthcare to value and not volume. I think providers, in particular physicians, that were taking part in value-based payment arrangements were not totally immune to the impact of COVID-19, but at least they still had some income. They had invested in technology and in infrastructure and in care management strategies. And even their switch to telehealth was probably Mm -hmm. relatively easy for them. So uh, let me ask a related question to you. Sure. How do you establish fair market value when you have a fee-for-service and a value-based payment arrangement coinciding in, in relationships with providers? Oh, yeah, that, is, that seems to be the, um, the challenge when, uh, when you have both of these models running simultaneously. And you've heard me say this before many times, Cindy, and we, we still have concerns about the reliability of, of data. And even with the improvements in data, there's still concerns about things like the published compensation survey data and the informed use of that data. Uh, And so those surveys have to be taken in the context of what they are and what they are not, as well as the fact that there's just still some catching up to do when it comes to value and value-based compensation. When When you think about, for example, survey data, believe it or not, there's still folks that use data inappropriately. We still continue to see the incorrect use of survey data and the incorrect use of practice data. So even with uh, improved analytics and technology, we still see misuse of some of the data, misunderstanding of the data that's in the practice. But let's just say, assume that the practice data and the survey data are all correctly applied. I, I feel confident that a review, really, really kind of three things, a review of the data, a review of the productivity and quality and qualifications of the provider, and and a review of the economics of the practice should all be used together to really arrive at fair market value. And this, to me, is true regardless of where the practice is on that spectrum between fee-for-service and volume-to-value, because to me, it is a spectrum. We're, we're somewhere in that middle in, in many areas still, and maybe a while, as you said, before we get to you know, truly to, to value. So this includes analyzing a physician's fee-for-service productivity and, at the same time, his or her success in reaching quality and outcomes measures. Uh, It it includes reviewing the sources of practice revenue, whether they're fee-for-service revenues or value-based revenues, and assessing where the practice stands. And some of the factors that we try to consider when when doing these things include things like the personally performed production of the physician, but also beyond that, the payer mix in the practice, reimbursement rates, uh, the effectiveness of revenue cycle in that practice, and, and value-based program revenues and measures uh, as well. Uh, what are the measures and uh, the, the related success relative to those measures? So it's a, it's a hodgepodge at best, uh, mm-hmm. and it's coming along, and it's developing, and, and will continue to develop. But it, um, 
we're still in that in that middle ground and um, still having to try to determine what fair market value is. And I think it goes without saying that total compensation is total compensation. And we are, we're always trying to be mindful of that. So, you know, making right. sure that total compensation is not out of line. Well, I'm going to shift gears now and, and, and pose a question about the start proposed rule that we saw come out last October. It brought forth, CMS brought, brought out, and NOIG brought out a lot of changes impacting referring physician relationships. And this included modernizations that were related to value-based arrangements. Do you see these value-based exceptions and definitions remaining in the final rule? And, and do you have a sense yet, Cindy, for when we might see that final rule? Well, I'll answer the last part of your question first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because that's a little shorter answer. (laughs) Um, We we were all um, expecting and anticipating that the final rule would come out sometime late this month, late Mm -hmm. June. Mm -hmm. Um, The coronavirus may have put a, a, uh, you know, a little bit of a kink in that plan uh, for CMS and for the OIG um, I have not heard anything definitive yet. Uh, I've checked with a couple of sources and they don't respond. So I think that means they are uh, hard at work on it and don't want to commit to anything. Um, but but I think realistically, if they can get past um, the public health emergency and you know all of the blanket waivers and things that they were having to deal with um, once the, the coronavirus hit, Um, we should be able to see something final. My guess is it's probably been delayed a couple of months. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Cindy to discuss more. Do you see these value-based exceptions and definitions remaining in the final rule? You know, the proposed rules focus extensively on the transition to value-based care delivery and Mm -hmm. payment models. As you know, uh, CMS proposed three exceptions and some changes to a few existing regulations relating to value-based care. CMS seemed to recognize that the Stark laws were deterring parties who would otherwise be participating in innovative arrangements to facilitate care coordination designed to improve the health and the quality of care and reduce costs, the triple aim of the Affordable Care Mm -hmm. Act. Those proposed rules were intended to strike a balance between the flexibility that we all agreed was needed for innovation to flourish and the safeguards that CMS in particular believes is necessary to protect patients and the federal healthcare programs against fraud and abuse. CMS expressed some concerns about really four kind of buckets of of issues. The first was limiting medically necessary care. The next one was cherry picking to pick just the healthiest patients to participate in these arrangements. Mm -hmm. The third was lemon dropping, dropping, you know, Mm -hmm. dropping Mm -hmm. the sicker patients. And then an appropriate, inappropriate manipulation of data used to verify performance and outcomes. Overall, I think the proposed rule represents a comprehensive effort, especially when you look at what the OIG did with its proposed rule for um, mm-hmm. modifying the anti-kickback statute and adding some, some safe harbors. That supports a shift to reimbursement models that are driven by quality and efficiency rather than volume. 
But I, we are still concerned uh, that some of these aspects may be difficult to interpret and apply in, mm-hmm. in practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I expect CMS has received many comment letters addressing <laughs> these concerns. Yes. <laughs> and, and we're hopeful that the final rule will address them. I'll give you one, one example that we've run into. The proposed value-based exceptions protect remuneration provided or exchanged under and I'm using a whole lot of defined terms in the proposed rule, but I'm assuming everybody's looked at them, under a value-based arrangement among a value-based enterprise and its value-based participants that will provide at least one value-based activity for a target patient population to achieve a value-based purpose. Lots of definitions in there. Mm. But one in particular, the definition of a value-based purpose includes four core goals. And one of those goals is appropriately reducing costs to or stopping the growth in expenditures of payers without reducing Mm -hmm. the quality of care for a target patient population. CMS noted uh, in the um, proposed rule that they were debating whether to change this definition to adjust that cost reduction goal. So instead it would say reducing costs to or growth in expenditures of payers, and then this is the new language they're they're thinking about, while improving or maintaining the improved quality of care for the target patient population. So to me, this means if in the final rule, a value-based enterprise could not qualify a compensation arrangement as a value-based arrangement that would meet an exception unless they had already achieved some improvement in quality of care. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's kind of limiting. And I hope we don't see this in the final rule. I do believe all three exceptions will be, be included in the final rule. That was the full financial risk exception, the meaningful downside risk, exception and the value-based arrangements exception. I want to give you one more example of what okay. I'm, I'm thinking about here and hoping that there might be some changes mm-hmm. uh, to in the full financial risk exception, CMS sought comment whether it should allow the value-based enterprise to be fully financially responsible for all the costs of care for a target patient population or only for specific costs or whether, and also whether it should specify a certain time period. I would like to see some flexibility in this exception and maybe allow the participants to either use the full costs or certain costs, but have it all set in advance so it's really clear to everyone what what the arrangement is contemplating. Yes. I guess it's probably fair to say that I've had a lot of people ask me, Cindy, what about the what about the proposed rule, start proposed rule and the impact on the work that we as appraisers do? That was exactly a question I had for you because I saw a lot of things in these proposed rules and I thought, hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder what this does to how Greg and <laughs> yes. his team will continue to provide these kinds of um, valuation services for, right. for us You're and right. our clients. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I've had attorneys ask me, I've had valuation colleagues ask me from different places around the country. And it's, you know, it, it's really, and, and I think you spoke to this, it's, it's been a consensus among folks that I've talked to that it's good that CMS listened to the stakeholders and I think, yeah. frankly, did a good job of trying to modernize and improve the Stark Law. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some folks who, who disagree, and I guess I would count myself among those with some of the defined terms uh, around value, and you, you 
highlighted some of those definitional aspects of the proposed rule that are, you know, somewhat problematic. And, and I suspect, you know, to your point about the, the commenters, that they've, there's probably been a good number of commenters that have highlighted some of those definitional issues. And, and you know, it's my guess that, you know, based on CMS's um, experience in listening to stakeholders and issuing the proposed rule, then hopefully they'll do the same with the final rule. You know, there's, a, there's another point I try to bring out when I'm, when I'm talking to colleagues about this. And, you know, I, I think of, and I guess anybody would of their own profession, I think of appraisal as art and science. And I'm not really aware of any other industry that has really allowed enforcement and the courts to take the profession as far away as it has from its theoretical roots, as we've seen when it comes to the fair market value of physician compensation. Uh, so just kind of as a, an example here, the appraisal community, and, and this would be anything, Cindy, from gemology to real estate appraisal to mm -hmm. valuing a mom and pop grocery store. There's been sound theory developed over decades of study and transactions and, and, that is the underpinning, if you will, for the appraisal practice. And, and of course, granted, physician compensation valuation is relatively young in the overall scheme of things when you think about the application of valuation theory. But you wouldn't see things like published surveys drive other appraisal specialties the way it does. That is something that I continue to wrestle with. and It is something that we, we in our appraisal profession do struggle with. Cindy, that brings us to the end of our time for episode one. Thanks so much to Cindy for her insights. And stay tuned for part two coming soon. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.